0: Morning, morning. I'm going to hook myself up here, but uh, while I do that, I have a $5 bill here with somebody's name on it, so whoever comes up here can have $5, really, anybody here wants $5, just come up here, all right, well, you know, I... Gonna be good to my word here. I'm sorry. In a symbolic way. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we've been starting first John, and uh, today, to uh, probably most of your relief, we're gonna finish up with the book. And if you remember, it had a series of tests in it. And today, we have the final test of life, and uh, that is the test of faith, the test of faith. Now, if I was to ask you, why did uh, Matt step forward and take my $5 bill, and the rest of you did not? (laughs) he took me at my word. He believed what I said. He believed I was really going to give five dollars to the first person who came up. I would like to suggest that maybe some of you did not. Maybe some of you did not. Some of you may have decided, you know, wanted to spare me, you know, and didn't want to take my five dollars. But uh, that's a test of faith. Evidence of faith. Taking somebody at his word. Let's go ahead and keep that in mind as we Read the first half of our passage today in 1 John 5, starting at verse 6. 1 John 5, starting at verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm going to do something I don't typically do when I preach, and I'm going to start in the middle. <laughs> We're going to start with uh, verse 11 because that's really the linchpin lynch, of the passage. Lynchpin, I, I may have my words right, but that's a real central point there. Everything really revolves around this, verse 11. And this is the testimony, or this is what God is saying, that God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his Son. Just like I said, I have five dollars here. I'll give it to whoever comes up. And by the way, I'm not sure, did I say the first person who comes up? I'm not sure I even limited to that. you know, Whoever comes up, that I would give them five dollars. It was an offer I made. In the same way God is saying he has given us eternal life. Eternal life is available as a free gift to whoever wants to come up and claim it. That's what God is saying. In just a few verses about that, Isaiah 55:1, a favorite passage, Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God is saying it's free. Come and get it. Jesus says this in Revelation 21.6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life Freely to him who thirsts. If you are thirsty for eternal life, Jesus is saying come and get it. Revelation twenty-two seventeen and the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, and the bride talking about the church, all of us here who know the Lord, say Come and let him who hears say come. And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him, take, let him take the water of life freely. God offers eternal life to everyone. Now, if all of you came up here and asked me for the $5, I would run out. <laughs> God offers to everyone eternal life. He has enough for all. Okay, we finish with the middle. Let's go to the beginning. Now, what we have here is the evidence. God is now going to spend, or, you know, John, the Holy Spirit through John, is going to spend some time trying to convince us of the validity of the offer of God. God is offering us eternal life for free. And sometimes we, you know, think that something that sounds too good to be true, it's because it probably is too good to be true. Well, in this case, it's not too good to be true. God really offers you eternal life for free. And John is going to spend some time trying to convince us of this. In verse 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Perhaps to understand what does it mean when Jesus says he came by water and blood, Uh, he uses an illustration in John Chapter 10 of a a sheep pen or a sheep fold. Uh, Maybe we could get a picture of it up. And uh, he says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheep fold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Now, the idea is we are the sheep. And uh, he is the shepherd. We are the people that God wants to take care of, and um, and we need a shepherd to come and take care of us. And that's the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the one who can give us eternal life. And he said, uh, as as I just read, that uh, he who enters by uh, he, he who does not enter by the sheepfold. He who does not enter enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs some other way, the same as a sheep and a robber. if somebody doesn 't come in the right way, if somebody is climbing over the wall and you were a sheep in that pen, you might feel a little bit nervous about that why because that 's not the way you 're supposed to enter. The shepherd enters by the front door right and uh, if somebody is climbing over the side there 's a problem. Um, Okay, so how is it, uh, okay, Jesus continued in that passage and says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Let me suggest to you when it says that Jesus says, it says that Jesus came by water and by blood, it says he entered by the front door, he came the way that we should be able to recognize that he is the one that will give us eternal life. So what is this water and blood that Jesus came by? The general agreement of commentator is the commentators is that the water refers to the baptism of the Lord Jesus. He came through baptism. He wasn't, um, he didn't just come and uh, say, you know, I am, uh, the Savior of the world, come and believe in me. He came in a very particular way, uh, re- referred to as baptism or water here. And to see that way, we could go to Mark. Chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We will have the verses up there, but uh, we sp- we'll spend enough time in this passage that uh, you won't uh, regret it if you spend the few seconds it takes to turn to that part of the Bible. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, very beginning of the book, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Jesus came into this world as the Messiah for the Jewish people. These were a people that God has prepared beforehand for the entry of Jesus into this world. The gospel was supposed to come to them first and then spread to the rest of the world. It's available to everyone, but God has prepared the special people he was going to come into and convince them first of the fact that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and then they were supposed to carry that message. And these people were prepared. They were given this book, the Bible, or the Old Testament portion of the Bible, and in it were specific prophecies that God will one day send a Messiah, a Savior, someone who would save them from their sins. And so they had specific prophecies in advance telling them a person is going to come and, and this is what he will do and this is what he will be like. So that when he shows up on the scene, they would be able to recognize him. Right? That's what it's about. Recognizing that Jesus really is the one who will give us eternal life. And they had prophecies and one of the prophecies was that God was going to send somebody beforehand. So Jesus wasn't going to come on the scene and proclaim himself. Somebody else would come first and he will prepare the people and once Jesus comes to the scene he would point to him. It's kind of a stage warmer. I understand they have today. Before a big star will come, you know, to uh to the platform and, you know, say what they would say or give the song or whatever. Somebody would come to try to warm up the crowd so there will be a proper reception of the big star that comes. In a sense, that's what it was like in the case of Jesus. Jesus wasn't to proclaim himself. Somebody would come him and point to him. That was the prophecies in the uh, the Old Testament, hundreds of years before. I believe that's Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before Christ, the prophecy was given. And then it was fulfilled. Verse 4 John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and honey and wild honey, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there it is. John came to the scene, he performed his ministry, which was incredibly effective. It says, as far as drawing attention, it says, all of Judea and all of Jerusalem came and were being baptized with him. Today we would shout, you know, hallelujah, what a revival in the land. Everybody is responding to God. That's what it seemed like in John's day. And then at the very end of it, he does what? He points to Jesus. This is the one I came to prepare you for. Now, this is not enough for God. The Father has to step in here. Actually, the Father and the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, and this, by the way, is when we said by water, he came by water, he was baptized. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, in whom... I'm well pleased. So God has to step here. It's not enough that there's a testimony of John the Baptist. God himself steps in. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. A visible manifestation. John the Baptist saw it too. It wasn't just Jesus who saw it. Which suggests really generally it was a visible phenomenon. Anyone standing there could have seen the Spirit descending. A voice came from heaven. This was an audible sound. God himself speaking, saying, This is my beloved Son. All right. Now, all of this, John is saying, is something that should cause us to be willing to trust in Jesus to give us eternal life. This is the one whom God sent as his Savior into the world. A big, you know, pointer. This is the one. Believe in him. Okay, well, that's not enough for John, back in 1 John. He says, not only by water, but by water and blood. What is the blood referring to? Maybe you guys are saying the answer and I just can't hear it. I, I'm sorry? The crucifixion, the crucifixion right, right. The crucifixion. <clears throat> it says this in Romans 3, 25. Uh, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God In his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let me start with this. God set it forth. It was visible. In theory, one would imagine God and Jesus could have gone, I'm sorry, God God the Father and God the, the Son Jesus could have disappeared into a closet, so to speak, and there completely taken care of our sins and had Jesus pay for us, our sins out of sight. In theory, that would have been possible, but that's not what he did. He set him forth to all to see. And again, this is probably especially meaningful to the Jewish people. Jesus was crucified on a cross within sight of the walls of Jerusalem, On the busiest day of Jerusalem, the Passover, when every Jew was supposed to come to Jerusalem, they would have all seen Jesus crucified. It was something that God set forth. Why? Because it was so important to God that we know that Jesus died. Why? Because that is the only grounds by which Jesus, by which God can forgive our sins and be justified. That's what it says here to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In order for me to receive eternal life, it means I have to be right in the sight of God, and that's exactly what God does. He comes to me and He declares me to be righteous with Him, and the only way He can do it is by taking care of my sins. And the only way He can take care of my sins is by having someone pay the death penalty for my sins, right? The wages of sin is death. Without Jesus dying on the cross, there would be no basis by which God can justify me and make me right with him. And it was so important to God that we recognize that fact that he has the means by which to justify us that he set Jesus forth in the most public possible way, the busiest day of Israel, that everyone would be able to see that Jesus died on the cross. It says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We, the apostles, we as believers... As though God were pleading through us, it's not us that are pleading with you, it's God himself who is pleading with you through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. Come and be reconciled. Why? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We will never understand. We were singing that last week. I will never know how much it cost to see my sins upon that cross. What, does it, what did it mean to him who knew no sin, a perfect, holy, righteous God, to have my sins laid upon him? Now, all of that is to convince you the price was paid. You know, if, you, if I was here and I was to say, you know, I, I have a million dollars for you, you know, how many of you would come up to receive it? <laughs> you wouldn't because you know I couldn't possibly afford to give you a million dollars. What God intends by demonstrating the death of Jesus on the cross is that he can afford to give you eternal life. The price has been paid. Now, it says that uh, Jesus came by water and by blood, and then it says that it is the Spirit who bears witness. Now, there's a change in the tense. In a sense, Jesus came by water and by blood. Those were past events, past historical events, we could turn to as evidence that we can really come to Jesus and he can really give us eternal life. Now we're turning to the Spirit and the present tense, It says, and it is the Spirit who bears witness. The Spirit is currently bearing witness to the fact that Jesus can give you and me eternal life. Jesus said this, again, talking about the transition, in uh, John 16, 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I, I go away. Jesus is going away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. We know from the context he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. I'm glad this is not my job to convict the world of sin. and of um, Sorry, lost my uh, word here. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, judgment, and righteousness. Uh, Either way. (laughs) It's not my... It was a responsibility given to the Holy Spirit. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who's been sent into this world to convince people of the fact they're sinners. Now, how does he do it? We're told in Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is The Word of God. So this is how the Holy Spirit is doing it. So you have the testimony of the Bible, the Word of God, that tells you that Jesus Christ can give you eternal life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. It says this too in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm glad again, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit, hopefully using the Word of God in your life, who is trying to convince you today, if you do not know Him, that Jesus really has eternal life in His right hand, and He's ready, ready to give it to you, ready to give it to all who come. okay, now, we moved here from the greatness of the evidence to the greatness of the witness. Again, it's part of John, John's argument here of why we should believe the testimony. And now he wants us to think of who he is who is testifying in verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. If we receive the witness of men, do you receive the witness of men? You know, I like to suggest to you, you do. You receive the witness of of men all the time. I have to, it's part of my job. You know, I work on a project. I'm one of several engineers working on a project, trying to develop, you know, the latest and greatest LED. And I bring my specialty into it. I'm, you know, a specialist when it comes to characterizing the LED and seeing how good it is. But there's going to be someone who is a specialist in the phosphors that we're using. Or a specialist in, in, in the packaging we're using for the LED. And I'm not going to possibly know about all these different things you need to know to make the, you know, an LED. And so I have to rely on what other people bring to the table. I have to receive their testimony. They're saying this is the best phosphor to use. I'm not going to question that. I have to accept it. <laughs> right? And it's true, almost everything we do in life, when you go to school, you're learning how by witness, you know, the teacher is telling you, you know, what two plus two is. And everything else that you learn, you have to believe if you're not believing your teacher, you're not going to advance. If the only way I can advance in life is through testing everything for myself, my progress will be really slow. I advance a lot quicker when I'm willing to accept what people tell me. And so it's true, we do receive the witness of men. And uh, what John wants us to think about, well, the witness of God is greater. If, If I'm willing to have people tell me something and I'm willing to believe them and I'm willing to act based on what they tell me, how much more when God tells me something? Again, we're talking here about the witness of God. It's God himself who is trying to convince you that he has given you eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, there's a reward here, if we're willing to believe. uh, He says that he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. What is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When we believe God, God gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee it says this in uh, Romans 8:15 through 16, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit comes into us and convinces us on the inside that we are the children of God. Now, I was thinking about this a little bit. Um, you know, we don't appreciate how wonderful uh, the given of the Holy, Holy Spirit is. It's described in the scripture as a guarantee to show that we really belong to God. We have believed in God. God has given us eternal life, and he wants to assure us of it, so he gives us this guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I was thinking it's a little bit like an engagement ring. You can get a picture up here. I got married... Uh, about 13 years ago, 13 years ago, and one month. And uh, you know, one of the things I knew I needed to do was uh, buy an engagement ring <laughs> for for my wife. And um, they actually uh, try to uh, help you choose the right engagement ring. And they say something like, like uh, three months, right? You should use three months' worth of your salary to buy an engagement an engagement ring. Now you know it's probably the beer is the one who's you know who's suggesting it to you, not necessarily for your good, but uh, they do say it. They say make three months last forever, right? Isn't that the, the phrase? It's just three months of your salary, and it lasts forever. <laughs> There's a drink. Well, you know there is something to say about that. You know, not not that I'm suggesting that's what everybody should do, but. Um, to some extent, I'm showing my wife how much I love her, right, by being willing to spend so much money, you know, on on my wife. I'm willing to take three months' worth of my salary and uh, turn it into a ring that I give to her. Now, think about the kind of love that God has for us. You know, how much love did God show us with the engagement ring that he gave us, right? Was it... Uh, you know, a diamond, one carat, two carats, three. He gave us the third person of the Godhead. God gave us himself. That's how much value he put upon you and upon me to show us how much he loves us, to show us how precious we are to him, and to some extent to show us how sure our salvation is. You know, if he just gave me, you know, a nice ring, you know, I think part of this giving of the ring, it's an assurance you're giving to your fiancé that you're going to marry her. And in theory, she can walk away with it. Right? You know, if you at some point, you know, decide that you don't want to continue the relationship, well, she has something of value. Now, if I was Bill Gates and, you know, I gave you a a diamond ring and, you know, it was worth, you know, a thousand dollars, well, Bill Gates can walk away from a $1,000, right? That's not very much for him. And that's why perhaps this three-month concept, like I have a hard time walking away. For Bill Gates, walking away from three-month salary is probably like $3 million or something like that. Maybe it'll make him think twice. Probably not. It needs to be a little bit more than that. But uh, yeah, it show, God shows us how precious we are to him that he would give us the Holy Spirit himself to assure us of, of our salvation. Okay, and then on the other side, if we don't believe it, God is offering us, you know, eternal life. I offered you five dollars. Somebody took me up on that offer. Now, you know, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but when you were not believing me and didn't come up to claim your five dollars, what were you saying about me? I'm a liar, right? You, You didn't think I was as good as my word. Well, when you do not come and claim the eternal life that God is offering, you are telling God, I don't believe you. I think you're a liar. You know, I, I don't think that you'll really give me eternal life if I come to you and I receive Jesus. Okay, You're effectively calling God a liar. God is not a liar. It says, <clears throat> I know I'm going out of order, I apologize, Jake. I could only actually find that, but else I could really uh... God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? It's okay if you call me a liar, because I am. you know I'm sorry. you, know, you, don't, you don't want to hear a preacher say that, but you know the truth is, I don't tell the truth all the time. But uh, God is not a man that he should lie. It is God who is testifying here, not me. Okay. So we made it to a verse, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So we, have, we started with the purpose, why did John write this epistle? And uh, now we're at the end, again thinking about why did John write this epistle? Well, it was so that we may know that we have eternal life. He gave us this series of tests. And hopefully, as you were looking at these different tests, uh, according to John, I think what he wanted was to encourage true believers. That was his, his main goal. He wanted to assure us that we're truly saved as we're looking at all these different tests. And uh, this here really is the final one. Now, I checked this with uh, Jake, but uh, you know, when you uh, come across a person who is uh, perhaps in a, a comatose condition, uh, if you've been uh, trained in CPR, uh, you, the first thing you want to establish is, is the person alive or dead, right? That's, that's really the first thing you want to do. And uh, <clears throat> there's different different ways you can test it. I think uh, the next slide here, first you try to wake him up, and uh, you can do it with something that smells, has a very strong, pungent smell, it might wake a person up, or, you know, what I've been told is you're supposed to come and kind of tap their shoulder, you know, hello, hello, are you okay? You know, you're just trying to, because if they wake up, they're fine, they're alive before you start you know, breaking their ribs trying to you know, restore their breath. You know, check to see, maybe they'll take you a nap. <laughs> um, but uh, the, next, the next thing uh, that uh, you could do is you could try to check for a pulse. But uh, the problem with checking for a pulse is that you can't always find the pulse. So maybe you can't sense a pulse, but they might be perfectly fine. And uh, the test that I was told is really the critical one, and, and Jake confirmed it to me, before the messages, you want to see if they're breathing, and here they're using a mirror to try to see if some of the, uh some condensate that's coming out of your breath will show that you really are breathing. It really is used. I've, you know, unfortunately, I had it actually used on me once um, to see if I was really breathing. So it, it is, you know, one of the ways, or you can maybe hear a person breathe. But that's it. That's, you know, the most definite sign that somebody is living, is breathing. If he's not breathing, he is, if I understand correctly, you know, considered to be medically dead. Now, the person could still be resuscitated. If he just stopped breathing, there's a chance to and, that, and that's when you start applying CPR and you're trying to pump the chest, and you know you call 911 and I'm sorry Their heart oh, I see. that's when they're clinically dead, that's when they stop breathing. All right, I'm wrong. You see you can't trust what I say. But uh, at least I'm willing to be corrected. Okay, well, what we're getting to is this really is the final test that John has given us here. He says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Some some of the signs and the tests have given may seem kind of uncertain. How do you tell if someone really is a child of God? How can you tell if someone really is saved? Well, this is a really simple test. Do they believe in Jesus? Right? If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have life. It's that simple. If you do believe, uh, in Jesus, you put your faith in Him to save your soul. You've come to Him to receive the eternal life that He offers you. Then you are saved. You have the Son. You have received His offer. And you're saved. Okay. Uh, we now have the rest of the passage to finish up, finish up with 1st John. This will go rather quick. Uh, We're picking up in verse 14. It says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, He will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one and we know that the son of god has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son jesus christ this is the true god and eternal life little children keep yourselves from idols amen so end the first epistle of john we have another 10 minutes to go <coughs> Uh, really what we have here is the evidence of, uh, of, of the salvation that we've talked about there's a real change that happens in the person who is saved and uh, or you could say it's a real relationship it says that God gives us eternal life and when that happens when you receive eternal life you, know, you believe it that things are going to change in your life it's not going to be the same thing one of the things that changes is prayer. Really, before being saved, I, you know, I've never really prayed. Occasionally, maybe, I was in deep trouble you know, and you know, asked God to save me from my trouble, which is an interesting thing to do when you don't believe in God. But it seems that deep down inside, we know there is a God and when things get bad enough, we do cry out to Him. But that really changes. As we're saved, all of a sudden, we have a relationship with Him and we desire to talk to him and to ask him. And, and, and the Bible says that uh, anything, you know, let, let, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request, be known unto God. So we're encouraged now as believers, you know, it's it become something we engage in constantly, really, talking to God, prayer to God. And we see answers to prayer. When uh, we had uh, health problems with our children, serious health problems with our children, you know, it's amazing how quickly, you know, we get on the line and we start calling the saints and say, pray for us. Why? Because prayers work. Not prayer, but God. God works through prayer. We know God answers prayer and that's why we're so desperate to be covered by the prayers of the saints when we are in real need. The second uh, evidence of, of salvation is the fact that God is, is working in our lives to discipline us. And we have this uh, in the passage about sinning here, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Well, what is this death is talking about? That's probably you know, came to your mind if you're not very familiar with this passage. And it's really the death of the discipline of God. God works in the lives of believers and disciplines us. Uh, in Hebrews twelve, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my son do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves. He chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening of all, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not son. And what he's saying is if you are really a child of God, God loves you so much that when you go astray in your daily life, God is going to come in and do something about it to help you. Um... You know, I'm a father and I have children and I take them to the park and uh, sometimes there is at the park a child that misbehaves and I say, oh, that's somebody else's problem. (laughs) But if it's my child, you know, all of a sudden it really bothers me that my son would do that. And God is the same way. When you become a child of God, it really bothers God When you're no longer walking in the way that he wants you to walk. And he comes into your life and he corrects you and it's an act of love. Because God loves you so much, he cares about you so much, he wants to see you walking properly and he will come into your life and correct you. Now, there's several examples in the scripture when that results in death. God will literally take your life as an act of discipline in your life. It says this in... uh, 1 Corinthians 5.5, that uh, when someone is engaged in a a sin, they're not willing to repent of it, Uh, the church is supposed to to come in and join with God in the act of discipline in putting a person out of fellowship. But it continues on, saying, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's talking about death. Destroy this flesh, I'm going to die. right? sorry, I lost my place, destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We're talking about a brother here in John. And you cannot lose your salvation. And it says in this passage, the destruction of the flesh, a person will die, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Someone said it this way, that it's possible for a person to be fit for heaven, but not be fit for earth. We're fit for heaven because Jesus died for my sins. And as soon as I die, I go to be with the Lord Jesus. But the, my life can come to the point where I'm no longer fit to live on earth. I'm living in such disobedience to God. I will not turn from that disobedience. God will decide, I'm just going to take this person out. All right? Now, he's not losing his salvation. He's going to heaven. But you know, his life here on earth has come to an end. And I think, in, in some ways, it's wonderful to think about that, that as bad as things might get, well, first of all, God loves me, and he'll come into my life, and he'll try to correct me, and stop me from ever getting to that point. But even if God decides to take my life, because of my disobedience, he's taking me to be with Jesus in heaven. Isn't that a comforting thought? As bad as things get, the worst comes to worse: worst, I will lose my life here, and I'll go to be with him in heaven. Okay, Um, prayer, the discipline of God, the third evidence of the real eternal life that we now have um, is a change in our relationship with sin. It says in verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. I know we tend to struggle with how John phrases things in his epistle, because, wait a second, I sin. I'm still a sinner, after all. But there has been a change in my life. I no longer continue to live a life of sin as I did before I was saved. There's been a change, and that's what John is talking about. A change in our life. We no longer practice sin. We may fall into sin, but we no longer live in sin. A change that happens when we're saved. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I, I underline this as a change in our relationship with the world. Before I was saved, I was with the world. I was interested in what the world was interested in. If the world considered this to be something worth pursuing, I considered it to be something worth pursuing. When I got saved, it was almost like I kind of woke up and I said, wait a second, do I really want to pursue all these things that the world is pursuing, their pleasures, uh, you know, putting my confidence in? you know, money or retirement funds? Or do I have better and greater things to look for? And the answer is yes, we look for a city whose foundations are made by God, not of this earth. So there's a break in our relationship with the world. And uh, finally, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him is true. There is a change in my relationship with God. Before, at best, God was this kind of distant, you know, person in outer space that, you know, you know may may be interested or may not be interested in what's going on in my life. When you are saved, you come into an intimate relationship with God. We use the example of marriage. Before, uh, the word to know. Is a word that God often uses of the most intimate kind of relationship between a husband and his wife. And that's the relationship it describes between us and God. And uh, as much as I, I love my wife and I assure her of it <laughs> daily, you know, the relationship with God is even closer than that. And that's what God has come to give us. Now, it's interesting. And uh, you can take it as part of the uh, final exhortation here, if you're a believer today. It says, little children, keep yourselves from idol. It's amazing that uh, this is how the Apostle John is ending this So, After all that God has done for us, is it possible that idolatry is a danger in our lives? And idolatry isn't, um, you know, just this act of, you know, bowing down and, you know, praying, paying homage to statues. Idolatry is whenever there is something else in my life that is dearer to me than God Himself. He says this, Ezekiel 6 9. Then those of you who will escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. That God would be crushed. Whenever we set something higher than him, and the only way you can understand it is again in the marriage relationship. I have a relationship with my wife. How would she feel if I turned to another woman? She would be crushed. God wants to have such a close relationship with us that when there is something else that's closer to my heart than God himself, God hates that. And uh, obviously it's a danger for us as believers or John wouldn't be ending his epistle with that. That after all that God has done for me that I would allow something else to enter and seize a place in my heart. Whether it is you know, money or uh, entertainment or a relationship with another person other than God. For any of those things to, to come closer, to have a greater hold on my, my heart than God. That is idolatry. What God hates and we should keep ourselves from idols. Let me close with this. If you have never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I can tell you on the authority of the scripture, you are not saved. You are not going to heaven. You are going to hell. Nothing to do with your good works. You may be a really nice person. You may walk old ladies across the street. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. The Bible is very clear about that. And yet, at the same time, the Bible is very clear that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. It's completely available for you to come and claim it. If you haven't claimed it yet, why not do so today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son into this world to uh, die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. And then to form this incredible relationship with us. Lord, we say to you that we love you, and uh, we uh, pray for anybody here who has not yet entered into that love, that you might draw them to yourself, that they might bow the knee at the cross and receive that free salvation which Jesus paid so dearly for, that they might receive it. We pray for them uh, today, in Jesus' name, amen.